listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. All right. You guys doing good? Good. Five of you. Cool. All right. So we started a new series, y'all. Yes, yes, excitement. All right, so hey, uh, we actually just got done. Cool, there we go. All right, so we just got done going through what book? Just, just, so, just so you guys can make me feel better about myself. Joshua, there we go, I like it. Sweet. Hey, all right. Un momento, por favor. Cool, all right, your boy's voice was cracking, so I'm like, I need something to drink. All right. Cool, yeah. So we were just going through the book of Joshua, and really we were talking about God's faithfulness, right? And last week, we kind of had a little bit of a, we had a little bit of a, I don't know, sometimes I like to call them like just like a, a kick in the rear end message, you know? Uh, you know, basically the choose this day whom you shall serve, right? We talked about that last week and the importance of, you know, hey, you can't live your life on the fence, right? You have to choose to follow Christ. You have to choose to follow Christ and to not choose is to choose, right? So this week we are starting a new series called Follow Me and we are going through the book of Luke and we're going to be going through the book of Luke, but we're really going to be focusing in on Jesus's approach to discipleship. Now, when I say discipleship, I think it's important for us to understand what first what a disciple is because like because this whole series you know if we're talking about discipleship it's important for us to know what a disciple is now just a very simple definition of a disciple okay is somebody who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and desires to help others do the same very simple could you shut the door like thanks so right it's so it's somebody who desires Sorry, it's somebody who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and desires to help others do the same. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a disciple. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time introducing things here because we have a lot to talk about tonight. So we're just going to dive right in. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. And what we're really going to do is we're going to focus on, like I said, discipleship according to Jesus. Because I think a lot of times when we talk about making disciples, we either oversimplify things, right? We kind of oversimplify things or we way overcomplicate things. Make it to to where it's like you have to have like a rocket science degree to be able to do it, right? And what we're going to do is we want to look at what was Jesus's approach to discipleship. So Luke chapter three, we're going to start in verse one. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, and John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's three things I want us to look at tonight. We're talking about discipleship. Three things. One, Jesus is the focus. Two, Jesus is worthy. And three, Jesus makes the difference. So in verse 15, we see this line where it says, as the people were in expectation. The people were in expectation. Now, when Luke says this, it's important for us to understand what are they expecting, right? What are they in expectation for? So for hundreds of years and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people were waiting the coming of the Messiah, the one who would free them, the one that would bring liberation. He would, he would set all things that were sad, make them untrue. He would right every wrong. The one that would bring them the freedom from the oppression that they had been hungry for. The one that all of their hopes and their aspirations were found in. This guy, God's chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ, this guy they have been waiting for for years and generations. They've been waiting for God's chosen one. Then here comes John, right? Here comes John, and he's proclaiming this message. John the Baptist is a very unique individual with a very unique message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what he's saying is, hey, get right with God because the kingdom of God is near. Get, things, get right with God because the kingdom of God is near. This is like an apocalyptic style preaching. This is like, whoa, like this is different. Or this is a different kind of preaching than what we have. This apocalyptic style of preaching sparked the interests of many people. Many, many, many people were coming to hear John not only preach, because I think a lot of times we think of John the Baptist, all we think that he was doing was baptizing people. He was just like standing like assembly line style, and just woof, 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 right? But no, he was preaching, and people came to hear him preach, and he was also baptizing. He was a captivating speaker. People would flock to hear him from all over. And you want to know how he was a captivating speaker? Because he was in the middle of the desert, and people went to go hear him. Like, you know, modern church growth people would probably say, like, that's probably not the best choice, right? To set up your preaching ministry in the desert, you know, you need to set it up off of a highway, a highly used highway, uh, preferably an interstate, have good visibility to the people in your town, everything. No, John was in the middle of the desert. People would come to hear him and to be baptized by him. And when you combine the apocalyptic message with the people's longing for their savior, then you have a swirl of speculation that is starting to raise questions. If you keep going in verse 15, it says, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. For many, they were thinking, you know, hey, perhaps this is the guy we've been waiting for. Perhaps this is the dude. Right? This is the guy I've been waiting for my entire life. My grandfather waited. There, there, here he is. I want you to think about this. John is bringing a message as he prepares the way for the Messiah, and the people are looking at him thinking he's the Messiah. It's like this. It's like when you go to Disney. Uh, I love Disney, by the way. If you don't, we'll pray for you, okay? So it's like when you're on your way to Disney, there's this massive sign that says, what? It says, Welcome to Walt Disney World. Have you seen it? Right? You know, and it's always funny because, like, you're driving and everything within me is tempted to just, like, slow down to, like, like the speed of smell, you know, and just, like, go really slow so that I can get a good picture of the sign, All right? And I'm amazed by the sign, but what I forget is that if I just keep going, I'll get to what the sign's actually telling me about. 
And what you see is these people who will pull off on the side of the road even though they're not supposed to, and they're infatuated with the sign rather than what the sign is telling them they're about to go to. What what John is doing here is John is simply the messenger. He is preparing the way for Christ, for, for Jesus, and people are all the time thinking that he's the Christ. John is pointing to the Christ while they're thinking that it might be him. And imagine being a Jew during this time. The Jews were under severe oppression from Rome. They're starving for salvation and and someone to free them from the hopelessness that is all around them. Think about that. The hopelessness that they saw. For years, just waiting for it to appear. They didn't know what their salvation would look like, but they knew that they needed it. They knew that it was prophesied about and they knew that it was coming. They knew that something, someone was coming. Someday it's going to be better than what it is right now. Now, so they see someone bringing this message that sounds like what they've been waiting for, right? It sounds kind of like what they're waiting for. Here's a man that speaks about the kingdom of God being near. This is a guy that is talking about the thing that I've been hoping for. Perhaps he's the one with the key to my hope and joy, right? Perhaps this is the guy that I've been waiting for. Perhaps, you know, so rather than looking for Jesus and the one that John is talking about, they begin looking to John himself, Now I want you to look at our world today and ask yourself if it's any different. Right? People around you and around me are dying emotionally, spiritually, and even physically seeking something better than what they already have. Many of you in this room are probably seeking with all of your heart something that is better than what you currently have, something that will save you from the depression and the emotional turmoil and the spiritual turmoil and even maybe the physical turmoil that you're in at the moment. What do we do? Right? Depression and suicide amongst young people are at an all-time high. People seek salvation and hope and relationships, money, sex, drugs, popularity, and more. And here's the question. Why do we seek these things? Why do we seek salvation in these things? Because every time someone comes around proclaiming or flaunting the happiness that we are desperate for themselves, what do we do? We think, that's it. That's what I need. I need what that person has. Right? Like, we're desperate for this joy and this peace and this satisfaction. And what happens is we see somebody seemingly protruding this, just like this joy that oozes out of them. We're like, oh, we want that. And even though 90% of the time it's fake, but we see what they have, and we're like, man, I want that. So what we do is we idolize what they have. This isn't just a non-Christian thing. This is something that Christians do. We elevate pastors and popular Christian influencers to the point that we idolize them. We idolize these people. They become this source that only Christ should be. Not that they have done anything wrong, but we've taken the good that they do for the kingdom of God and we have made them what they ought never be. We've taken them and we have made them in our minds what only Jesus should be. And we're shocked when they disappoint us. Here's the question, why do we do this? Why do we do this? If we're seeking the salvation, why do we constantly just cling to these things that can never save? Why do we do this? And the reason we do this is because our hearts are idol-making machines You want want to know what your heart is best at? Making idols. It's good at it, boy. Like, let me tell you. You got the Michael Jordan of idol makers, right? Mine does it too. We make idols out of everything. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
We will take anything and we will make an idol out of it. And here's the question. Why do I bring this up? What does this have to do with the passage? What does this have to do with the discipleship? And here's what, I'm, here's just what this has to do with discipleship. You need to be aware of the human heart's natural inclination. What I mean by that is you need to know what the human heart naturally wants, what it will naturally do. If you're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ, or if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to know what people naturally do when someone brings them something shiny. What do they do? Instead of looking to the Christ that you proclaim, they will elevate you to be the source of hope and salvation. And you have to continually fight this. If you're going to make disciples, or if you're going to be a disciple, you need to know that Jesus is the focus. No one else. No one else, not me, not your mom, your dad, your auntie, your uncle, your grandparents, not your friend, not that person on, on you know, social media that says all the Jesus stuff, not that famous pastor that you see on TikTok or Instagram. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the focus. You have to continually fight this idea of elevating ourselves to be the focus. You need to continually make a point to make much of Jesus and less of yourself. If you're going to make disciples, you need to make much of Jesus and less of yourself. And I can give you several examples in Scripture where we see people do, where we see people do the opposite. Right? They cling to the messenger rather than the message. Think of Moses when he led the people out of slavery in Egypt. He was faithful with what God gave him to do. He goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and what do the people do? They freak out. Where's Moses? Where's Moses? Where's Moses? Oh, oh. They go to Aaron. Hey, Moses is gone. We need something. And what do they do? They make a golden calf, and they worship that. Because now their idol of a person is gone, so now they got to make a different one. Give you another example. When the gospel is proclaimed in Corinth, the city in Greece, when they, the gospel gets there, what do the Corinthians be, do? They begin aligning themselves with the person who presented the gospel to them rather than the gospel itself. How do we see this? 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 15. It says, for it has been reported to me, this is Paul speaking, it says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Skip to verse 17. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You need to know, if you are discipling someone, constantly, 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 Point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Be faithful and be available, but do not attempt to be what only Jesus can be to them. Do not, do not attempt to be what only Jesus can be. Because not only will they put that pressure on you, but you will put that pressure on yourself. Trust me. I know. I know. I cannot be to you what only Jesus can be to you. And what I do is I want to be. I, I, I do, I want to be. I want to be, but I can't. Likewise, if you're being discipled by someone, remember you are not their savior. Love Christ more than the person who told you about him. 
I'll say that again. Love Christ more than you love the person who told you about him. And I'll tell you this. If I saved you, you're going to hell. Only Jesus can save you. Be disciples of Christ, not me. So one, we see Jesus is the focus. Second, we see Jesus is worthy. John goes on to address the speculation, and he does so by explaining the difference between Jesus and himself. And how does he do this? Right, we talk about Jesus is the focus, and why is Jesus the focus? Why is Jesus the focus? Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John says, before you go around thinking that I'm anything great, you need to understand that I'm not even worthy of being his servant. Now, there's a, there's, a, a, there's a rabbinical teaching. And when I say rabbinical, what that means is basically rabbis who were the spiritual leaders of the day, right? These teachers. There's a, there was a teaching that whatever a slave would do for their master, a rabbi could ask his disciples to do for him except for one thing, and that was you do not ask a disciple to untie your sandals. That was considered to be the low of the low. That was the job for the lowest of the lowest servant. That was the job for no, you do not ask your disciples to do that. And what John is saying here is that I am not even worthy of that. I'm not even worthy of that. And here's the thing. It's not that he is beating himself up. What he is doing is he is elevating Christ. He's elevating Christ. You need to know that he is so worthy that I do not even deserve to speak about him. To remove someone's sandals was an embarrassing job. He says, I don't even deserve to do that. You see, the reason we idolize things is not because we think too highly of our idols. It's because we think too lowly of Jesus. Let me tell you, the reason that you and I create idols in our life is because we do not have a high enough understanding of who Jesus is. Because if you did, if you understood how worthy he is of your worship, you wouldn't seek to worship other things. We worship like it's an itch that we got to scratch. We worship people, we worship things, we worship money, we worship ideas, we worship concepts, we worship all these different things. Why? Because we were created to worship. What we do is we fix our worship on these things that don't matter and we forget how worthy he is of all of our worship. You need to know something tonight and for the rest of your life. The life of a disciple is one of continually learning just how worthy Jesus is. And I have good news for you. You'll never run out of ways of how worthy Jesus is. You'll never fully comprehend. Even when you're in heaven for eternity, it will take you all of eternity to grasp how worthy Jesus is of your worship. You want to know why we worship? Because he's worthy. You want to know why we surrender our lives to him? Because he's worthy. Why do we want to know him more and we read our Bible and we spend time in prayer and we come here? Why? Because he's worthy. I'm convinced, I want you to hear this, I'm convinced that the thing that is plaguing modern American Christianity is this right here. We have churches that are filled with people that leave every Sunday learning more about themselves than they do Jesus. We read the Bible this way, don't we? This is how we read our Bibles. I'm always David fighting my Goliath. 
I am the Israelites walking through my parted Red Sea. Don't get me wrong, there's incredible life lessons, there's incredible life applications that you could pull out of these stories. Don't read the Bible thinking, oh, I can't apply that to my life. No, like, there's amazing things that you could pull out of these stories and apply them to your life, and I hope that you do. But we have to be careful to not allow this to be the main focus of the way we read the Bible. You cannot allow this to be the default way you read the Bible. And I've given this illustration before, but I think it's incredibly powerful. I listened to a sermon one time. I'm not going to say who the, guy, the guy's name, but he's a very popular pastor. He's a very good-looking guy, sharp, intelligent, an incredible speaker. And his, his church hangs on every word that he says. He was preaching a sermon, and there's a story in the Gospels where Jesus is on the boat with his disciples. There's a storm that comes over the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are freaking out. Like, we're going to die. Oh, my goodness, what's happening? And for those of you who know the story, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the back of the boat doing what? Sleeping. Jesus is asleep. And they're like, Jesus, wake up. Wake up, Jesus. I'm sure they didn't do that. But, you know, like, like, wake up, Jesus. And he wakes up, and they're like, Jesus, don't you care we're about to die? And Jesus gets up. The Bible says he rebukes the storm, and he says, peace be still. And what happens? The water calms, and the storm goes away. And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Like, who is this guy? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And what the pastor proceeded to do was give a message titled, How to Sleep in Your Storms. How do you sleep in the storms of life? Give a lot of good life application there. How to sleep in your storm. Then he proceeded to give life application of how you can find peace when life is difficult. And he never once pointed to the fact that you can have peace because Jesus commands the wind and the waves. And what happened is you have a bunch of people who leave church more determined to tackle Monday, but they know nothing more of how worthy Christ is. The point of that passage, the disciples say it. What do they say? They say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Is that the way you approach Christ when you read your word? Who is this? He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He created everything that I see. He breathes breath into my lungs. And he is worthy of my worship. Instead of a bunch of people leaving in awe of how amazing their God is, we leave encouraged to take on Monday a little better. And this is where we have our problem, is that we have forgotten that Jesus is worthy. Listen to this passage of Scripture, Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verses verses 9 through 14. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, and from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
nothing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you have a proper understanding of Jesus? That is who we are pointing people to. And it's really easy to not point people to yourself when you understand who you are in comparison to him. That is who we are making disciples of. I'm not worthy of your, I'm not worthy of your worship. Don't worship me. You aren't worthy of people's worship. Don't let them worship you. But Jesus is worthy. And we worship him. So when you're being discipled or when you're discipling other people, you need to raise your understanding of how worthy Jesus is. You cannot tell people about Jesus if you do not understand, begin to understand how worthy he really is. This is the last part. See, Jesus is the focus. Jesus is worthy. And then Jesus makes the difference. See, when you begin to understand the worth and the worthiness and the holiness of Jesus, then you will begin to understand this third point, that Jesus makes the difference. John goes on to say this. So John is saying, like, Jesus is the focus. Why is he the focus? Because he is worthy and I am not. And what he's going to give an example here of just one of the many differences between Jesus and him. He says, I baptize you with water. Skip ahead. He goes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chafe will burn with an unquenchable fire. See, the way that John emphasizes the worthiness of Christ is by explaining the difference between him and Jesus. And the core difference is, in, is Christ's worthiness in Christ's baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there's been a lot of teaching on this. And with the time that I have left, I want to just un unpack what John's saying here, what he means here, and what he's not saying. Because I believe that the way that, I believe that your life as a disciple of Jesus can be greatly impacted by how you understand this verse. First, baptism of water. What does that mean? Outward and symbolic. John's baptism is outward and it's purely symbolic. It's important for us to understand that bap water baptism was not something that was new to the Jews. In fact, it was something they did every single day. They had, so they had these, these massive, like, it's called a mikvah. And it's basically like a hole in the ground where they, they walk down these steps and it's filled with water. And they, what they, they do, they submerge themselves, they come up and they walk up out the other side. And they did this every single day. And they did this to ceremonially cleanse themselves before God. And it's believed, if you know the story, that this is what Bathsheba was doing when David saw her from his, from his roof. So she was ceremonially, ceremonially cleansing herself, right? And they did this every single day. But what John is introducing is not just a baptism of ceremony, but he is introducing a baptism of repentance. That is a one-time baptism. You don't do this every day. You get right with God once. He's introducing this. It's a baptism of, for, of forgiveness of sins, to be forgiven and wash your sins away and be made right with God. That's what's unique, and this is something that's totally different than what, they've, than what they've been taught before. It was a baptism that was once, and it was final. And as you can imagine, this is a novel idea to the Jews, 
But John reminds them to not look at him, but to look at Jesus. And John is pointing them forward to an ultimate baptism that Jesus would bring. That you can be baptized by John and still not be saved. And likewise, you can be baptized by me and still not be saved. Let's look at the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. What is the first thing that he says about Jesus' baptism? He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, like I said, there's been, there's gonna, there are some people who will disagree with what I'm about to tell you. Perhaps if you grew up with a more charismatic upbringing, more Pentecostal style of church, you've heard this term, baptism of the Holy Spirit, a lot. I'm going to be very, very clear here. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that happens separate from salvation. The Bible is clear. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an experience. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is when you are filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment you are saved. That's what that means. Now, does that come with emotion? Of course. Does that come with a, that, something that emboldens you and encourages you? And it's just like, holy moly, like something crazy. And you know what? Yeah. Maybe did you like maybe you get saved and it doesn't really hit you until later and you're like, man, like, oh my goodness, what I like, wow. But let me tell you that baptism of the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Holy Spirit when you are saved. Let me give you a few verses to explain this. First Corinthians 12, 13. Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Notice that Paul says that we were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. How can he make such a claim? Because he's writing to people who are all Christians. If baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that happened apart from salvation, like you can be a Christian and not be baptized in the Holy Spirit, if that was the case, he would not say that all of you in the church who are Christians have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't say that. The reason he can make such a claim is because he is uniting the filling of the Holy Spirit with being saved. You can't separate the two. You cannot be saved and not be filled with the Holy Spirit. John Piper answers this question. He goes, now I think virtually everyone agrees that Paul's understanding here is of baptism by the Spirit is the act by which the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ and his body, the church. In other words, it's conversion. It's becoming a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be moved upon by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are brought to faith and united to Jesus. To be a Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are moments where we are made more aware of his presence in our lives. Absolutely. And there are times where we are filled with boldness and, and, and eagerness, and we're filled with just like, man, like I'm just on fire for Jesus, right? You got that mountaintop experience. Doesn't mean, that you got, doesn't mean that you got saved again. Doesn't mean you were just filled with the Holy Spirit. Just means that God is pulling you. God is igniting that passion within you. How? Because of his Holy Spirit. However, those are not to be confused with being filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. If you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. I can't make that any more clear. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. How can I say that? Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. 
Paul says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying here is that how do you know you're saved? You have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's how you know you're saved. That's how you know you're saved. He makes his point again in Corinthians 12. For, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. He talks about the spiritual gifts. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but, in, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, now, it's important for us to understand this too, is that when, just because you're filled with the Holy Spirit does not mean that you can speak in tongues, that you can perform miracles of healing, that you can do all these different things. Why? Let me just, verse 7. He goes, to each one is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. So everyone who's a Christian has this. Now, skip ahead a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 12. What does he say? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? He's saying, look, like, do all of you speak in tongues? He says, no, you don't. But he just said that you're all filled with the Holy Spirit. So you can't just say, well, you should speak in tongues because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not biblical. And what you have is you have people who are, they're pursuing this, this emotion, they're pursuing this experience because they're afraid they're not saved. I don't get emotional when I pray. I don't get, well, I must not be saved. Let me tell you, that's not what the Bible says. Don't question your salvation because of, of your emotions. Please. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the inward change when Christ saves you. Water baptism is symbolic and outward. Spiritual baptism is inward and it's real. John is saying here that I can baptize you symbolically, but Jesus can baptize you in a way that I can't. And when I'm talking, when you're discipling somebody, you need to know, look, I can point you in the right direction. I can give you knowledge. I can, I can, I can be there. I can mentor you. I can help you. But you need to know that Jesus can do for you what I can't do for you. I can speak to your ears. He can speak to your heart. I can give you knowledge. He can save you. Jesus can do for you what I can't. Then we get to baptism by fire. Now, here's another interesting one. What does John mean by this? And it, For some of you, it's probably not what you've heard. Baptism of fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the baptism by fire is not... Passing out, being slain in the spirit, it's not laughing uncontrollably, it's not rolling on the ground, it's not twitching. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, I've read it, nowhere, is the Holy Spirit marked by these things. But you know what is marked by these things? It's people who are demonically possessed. That's another topic for another time. So what does he mean by baptism by fire? Ultimately, what this means is that Jesus will purify his church. Where do I get that? Like I've said before, when you don't understand something, oftentimes the author will further explain the thought that he has made later on. So continue reading. Verse 17, it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into, the, into his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, we read that, and for those of you like, like me, and you have no, you read that first, and you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Right? A couple months ago, I had a student text me. I have no idea what this means. Right? Cool. Like, 
totally fine. And you know who you are. You're in the room. Right? No idea what that means. And you know what? Hey, that's totally cool. You're going to read things. You're not going to understand what it means. But here's what this means. Your winnow is, it says you're winnowing fork. Basically like a pitchfork. And what, what, this idea of a threshing floor, what you have is, now they would, they would farm wheat, okay? I don't know if any of you have ever farmed wheat. I haven't. But what happens is, is that you have a stalk, and then you have these, this chafe around it, and then the wheat that's actually usable is like kind of buried in there, right? So what you have to do is that they get it all, they harvest it all, and they dump it on this, this massive marble slab called a threshing floor. And they pile it in there, and they have this massive, like, it's like a pitchfork, and they stick it in there, and then they throw it up in the air. And what happens is that separates the wheat from the chafe. And when they throw it in the air, the chafe, which is the stuff you can't use, drifts off into the wind, and then the wheat falls to the bottom. And what they'll do is for hours, they'll just chink, foom, chink, foom, chink, foom, until eventually all that's left is wheat. So what do we see here is that John is saying that Jesus will separate the good from the bad. He will separate his from those who are not his. He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He will separate, and there will not be any question, who is Christ's and who is not. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to what he says, baptism by fire. He says Jesus will separate those who are, who are his from those who are not his. It means that Jesus will refine you. Jesus will not leave you as you came to him. Here's the thing. You come to Jesus as you are with your sin, with your baggage, with your shame, with your hurt, with your guilt, with what, you know what, you don't take, you don't clean yourself off before you get in the shower, right? If you stank and you nasty, get in the shower. Don't clean yourself off before you get in the shower. That's what the shower's for. Here's the thing, you don't clean yourself off before you come to Jesus. You come to him as you are. Bring your burdens, bring your cares, bring your hurt, bring your sin. But know this, you come to him as you are, but Jesus will not leave you that way. He won't. He won't. And if you are the same as you were, then you need to ask yourself, do I really have a relationship with Jesus? So he will refine you. And what does this refining look like? There's something called a, refining, a refiner's fire, which is mentioned all throughout the Bible, and I have a few verses. What they do is you have like a metal, right? So let's say you have gold. Do you know how they clean gold? How they like, how they purify gold? What they do is they melt it. They apply an incredible amount of heat to it. And it melts. And all the impurities float to the top. And then they scrape it out. They throw it away. Until eventually all that's left is solid, pure, clean gold. That is called refining. Now... With that in mind, I want you to listen to these verses. Zechariah 13, 9. This is God speaking about his people. It says, and I will put this third into the fire, and I will refine them as one refined silver, and I will test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Malachi 3, 2 through 5. But who can endure the day of his coming? This is talking about the coming of the Messiah. Who can endure in the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, all as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Romans 8.29, listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, when we see that word uh, predestined, a lot of us freak out. I want you to see what are they predestined to do? Read it slowly. For, the, for those whom he foreknew. Okay, so for those that God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What that is saying is for those who are Christ's, for those who are saved, God has predestined your life to make you more like Jesus. If you're a Christian, the things in your life, the struggles, the hurts, the disappointments, the joys, the mountaintops, the valleys, are there to make you more like Christ. And what happens a lot of times is that God will allow heat to be applied to refine you, to make you more like Christ. What does that have to do with discipleship? No, what does it say? The disciple, being a disciple of Jesus, it changes you inwardly. It's not just, a, I'm going to do this, and I'm just going to, I'm going to study my Bible. I can quote it backwards and forwards. I met a man who was, I met a man who was a Muslim. And, you know, they pray five times a day, I believe it is. They pray a lot. And the prayers that they pray are in Arabic. And the Quran is in Arabic. You can't translate the Quran out of Arabic. If you do, it's not the real Quran, what they say, right? So they pray in Arabic, and he was saying that he doesn't know what he's saying when he's praying. He's just praying what he's been told to pray, but he prays passionately. Why? Because he's been told to pray, because he doesn't speak Arabic. Let me tell you, being a disciple of Jesus is not just repeating words that you've heard. Being a disciple of Jesus is not just saying the things that you know, hey, I was told I should do this. Being a disciple of Jesus changes you inwardly. That's the spiritual baptism. And being a disciple of Jesus, we talk about that baptism of fire, will set you apart from a world that hates him. It will make you more like him. To be a disciple of Jesus is not just skips through the parks with rainbows and bubblegums. It's a life of sacrifice. If you were here Sunday morning, Pastor Allen preaching, what did he say? If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. To be a disciple is not to have the easy road. To be a Christian is to willingly lay down your life. Hey, but you know what's amazing is because of that spiritual baptism, because God has changed you inwardly, when you are being refined, you find joy in it because you know what he's doing. And here's the thing. If you want to disciple others, you know what you need to do is that you need to point them to Jesus. Why? So that ultimately they'll be like him. 
naturally when you're discipling somebody or when you're, someone's discipling you, you'll naturally start to kind of take on some characteristics of that person. Like, I've gotten the chance to disciple a lot of people, and it's funny because, like, a lot of times whenever they talk about the Bible, like, I see them, like, dip into, like, mic mode a little bit. I'm like, man, like, I don't think I like you talking to me like that, right? Uh, no, but, you know, it's like, you know, and I see, but I see a lot of, like, attributes of it. You know, Pastor Allen told me one time uh, when I became the student pastor, he said, you'll notice that the ministry that you lead will take on a lot of your strengths and a lot of your weaknesses. What I've seen is our student ministry is very strong in the areas that I'm strong in. And I've also seen that there's some areas where our student ministry is weak, and a lot of those areas are areas that I'm weak. You naturally become like the person that disciples you, but here's the thing. You need to become more like Christ. I don't want you to be a bunch of little me's, right? Like, if you want to look up to me, cool, right? Like, I'll tell you, like, but here's the thing. No, I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But you know who doesn't make mistakes? You know who is perfect? You know who is holy and righteous? Jesus is. We talk about making disciples. It's all about Jesus. Everything. Does that make sense? I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for today. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fact, God, that you don't just call us to follow you, but, Father, that you change us inwardly. You give us the power to follow you because of your Holy Spirit. And, Father, you don't just call us to change outwardly, Father. God, you, you come to us and you say, I'll change you. And through that, Father, you make us more like you. And God, as we disciple others, Father, I ask that you would help us to be able to point them to you and not to us. And Father, as we are being discipled, Father, that you would help us to become more like you. That, Father, that we would worship you because you are worthy. God, I thank you for everyone that's here. God, everything that I said that wasn't what you would have me say, Father. I ask that you just wipe it from our memories. God, that we don't leave this place thinking anything great about me. But God, we leave this place thinking how wonderful you are. God, I thank you. I praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Students Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students.